0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2019, the All About the Benjamins edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. My Valentine John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is in New York. Hello, John. I sent some beautiful red roses to you. How are you?
2: Well, and I return, I return them to you with whatever uh, gift would make you most happy.
0: <laughs> Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine, I send you some, some uh, candy hearts.
3: Mm, nice.
0: I don't really like those, actually. Can, I'll send you no, something else. No, gross. But yeah.
3: chocolate. Yeah.
0: Some, some delicious chocolates. Uh, hello, Emily. You are in New Haven, I guess. I am. On this week's GabFest, we appear, as we tape on Thursday morning, to be averting a second government shutdown. Is the compromise budget deal a defeat for the president? Is it a victory for America or none of the above? Then... The controversy over a Democratic member of Congress's tweets about APAC, And can the issue of Israel, support for Israel, fracture the Democratic Party? Then the Bezos sextortion scandal. What will we make of it? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we have two live shows coming up. We have a political gabfest live at the Lincoln Theater on Wednesday, March 27th. You can get tickets to that at slate.com slash live. And that is a show where we will, of course, be celebrating the forthcoming release of Emily's great new book, Charged. And you can get that book if you come to the show. And we're going to have a great guest as well who will announce soon. And then just a couple of weeks after that, on Friday, April 12th, we'll be in Charlottesville, Virginia, as part of the TomTom Tom Festival for another live show. You can get tickets to that show also at slate.com slash live And John will will, uh, tell everyone at that audience all the secret haunts of Charlottesville he used to go to to do mischief while he was an undergraduate at UVA. Will you do that, John? I'm just I'm offering that as a bonus. (laughs) You don't actually have to do it.
2: I don't. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I know any great secrets anymore. It's been so long. I'm not even sure that it's not all just changed like so much of modern life.
3: Are there any steam tunnels at UVA? Oh, Yeah. Well,
2: there you go. Hmm. I I, know, I don't know where they are, but they're, <laughs> they're definitely <laughs> steam tunnels. People did go down We'll do.
0: We'll do a special bonus segment in a steam tunnel if we can find one. Again, slate.com slash live, get tickets for those shows. As we record on Thursday morning, it appears that both the House and the Senate will approve a government funding measure that will avert a government shutdown that would start on Friday government shutdown, uh, remember, would come on the heels of the 35-day government shutdown earlier this year and at the end of last year, caused by the failure to reach an agreement over border wall funding. The president has been insistent that Congress put in funding, $5.7 billion funding so he can build new stretches of wall on the border with Mexico. Democrats now in control of the House have declined to do so. Under this compromise that is expected to pass, they will, will get a some budget funding for the rest of the year and $1.375 billion in funding for fencing repair and a bit of new fencing too as well, not the $5.7 billion the president wanted. So John, is this a huge defeat for President Trump or not really?
2: Well, it depends where you, how you want to measure it. Um, yeah, it's a defeat. There was two months of wasted time in which people uh, – all he did was reduce um, – Support for his underlying view caused a lot of people angst and upset and unhappiness in their lives as 800,000 of them weren't being paid. Contractors may never get paid, probably hurt the economy a little bit, although we're not quite sure, and just wasted a lot of time that could have been spent on – Things that are higher up in the priority or should be higher up in the priority uh, list of things that a president's time and attention should be um, put towards. Uh, As a polling matter, one of the funny – one of the interesting things is that his numbers are now at their second highest level in in the Gallup poll since he signed the first bill opening the government back up and since his State of the Union. So I'm not sure what we make of all of that, Um, but I I think in the larger sense – As a failure of negotiation, there was, we should remember, a time when the president was being offered... $25 $25 billion for his wall. That would have been part of a larger deal with Democrats to take care of DACA recipients um, and make some other immigration changes. Somebody who had the negotiating skills that he promised when he was a candidate and that he boasts about would have known how to grab that $25 billion if it is the priority that he thinks it is, that he says it is, and that um, essentially this was done by the Senate and House without the president Playing a constructive role in dealing either with what he wants or what the will of the members of Congress want.
0: So Emily, in previous the previous shutdown started because the president uh, refused to sign a bill that everyone expected him to sign. As we're taping, we don't know whether he'll sign it. Although it doesn't, the signals to me sound like he is going to sign it. But then he's going to take other measures. Aides are telling the press he's going to find a way around this by reallocating money, forfeiture money, for example possibly, or by declaring a national emergency. Do you think that is likely to happen? And is that even legal if he ended up doing something like that?
3: I think he is likely to try to move some money around, probably by executive order rather than declaring a national emergency, because some Republicans have made noises about the precedent that would set. It is an alarming precedent, the idea of declaring a national emergency when there is none. And... um, willy-nilly, expanding the power of the presidency um, in yet another way. So I think the executive order is the politically safer way to go. And then there will be absolutely a big legal fight about whether it's legal or not to just be moving money around.
0: So, John, one of the things that I find so disheartening about all of this is there's been months of agonizing over this. We had you know basically more than a month of no government. Uh, we've paralyzed the country over it and it's over a really a non-crisis a public mm-hmm. policy measure the wall which doesn't make that big a difference sure border security is important although it's by no means the most important issue facing the country um, and and so this disheartens me for two reasons one because it means that essentially nothing else has been discussed there's no other discussion around bu- budget priorities uh, that's number one and number two uh, as somebody who who wishes uh, ill politically for the president, having this constant fight about the border and immigration and that being the main issue that we're facing seems to me to be a a bad position for Democrats to be in overall. Like they should find other issues to fight about, not this one.
2: Well, um, that's an interesting second part. Uh, Let me, the first part on priorities, um, it's really true. I mean, you have to think about the sunk cost here of the two wasted months. And as you quite rightly point out, uh, you can have a debate about whether a wall is good or bad or whatever, and that's fine. But this isn't just about a debate about whether a wall is good or bad. And this is where I think just from a sort of to lapse into punditry for a second, Democrats, I, I think you're right. Make a mistake making this about wall, not wall. It's about wall versus every other priority president's time and attention and the attention he calls on the public to aim at a problem is one of, if not like the most in a a clotted up system, powerful things a president can do. And so it's not it's the choice of priorities the president has made, you know. And so if the house has a broken roof and the heat doesn't work and the stairway is broken, but the homeowner is obsessed about, you know, whether the third lock on the front door is sufficient, you would say that's a Disordered priority, and I—that th- to me is one of, as a governing matter, one of the big challenges here. How it plays out politically, I think you're probably—I uh, think you're probably right. Although there is a, you know, the, the, obviously the the larger message behind the wall um, and the president's use of immigrants as a as a big huge threat to America's way of life is something Democrats by standing up against that, I think that was part is part of the of the appeal to some of the Democratic base. So I don't know that it's a it's a total loss. But I think you I think it is fair to to uh, embrace the idea that if any time you're battling on the president's turf, which is what you're doing here, um, you're you're ceding the conversation to him that this turf is what's important. And um, based on the way he sees the election, if he can keep a lot of people on his turf, uh, then that's you know that worked for him uh, pretty well in 2016.
0: Disordered priority is going to be the name of my new wave band. I think disordered priority is a great phrase, and I want to use that for everything, John. That is a great, great phrase. So and let's I, keep that.
2: I, well, thank PM you for saying. So, thank you for saying so. And it's literally the key thing a president does, and it's what a CEO does. It's keep people focused, eye on the ball. About the ball that matters, not the ball that's over in the bin with the rest of the sports equipment, the ball that's actually in play. And there are lots of big ones that um, you could argue attention should be focused towards.
3: I mean, can you imagine how we're going to look back on this, like this moment when American infrastructure is famously decaying, like the trains take forever, the bridges are crumbling, et cetera, et cetera. And what our president talked about for months and months was building A wall from sea to shining sea to keep people out of the country. Like it's a big infrastructure project and we need those and this isn't one that's going to pay back dividends in terms of improving the American economy.
0: Did you see – this is – I don't know why what you just said made me think of this, Emily. There's this really disgusting story this week that came out about a coal plant that I think the TVA has – the Tennessee Valley Authority. Tennessee that Valley that Authority. I mean? Which uh everyone wants to shut down. It's a bad plant, it's inefficient, it's there's so many other better ways to get energy to the people who need energy. And everyone wants to shut it down. But the pers- the people that supply coal to that plant are big Trump donors. Yep. So they're keeping this dumb plant open. And it's that's a classic example of like like what there's the future, there's opportunity, there are things that will be improved, and instead it's like no, we're just going to do some dumb favor for dumb donors. Anyway, it's a non sequitur. Just, just irritated me. <laughs> it's a swamp. Uh, so uh, one of the things that, that's striking about this battle, as opposed to the last uh, government shutdown battle, Emily, is that it hasn't at all been about Nancy Pelosi. There's not been targeted fire against her. And I presume that is because... That really did not work for Republicans last time. It was not a good strategy to make it a Trump versus Pelosi showdown. Is that your read?
3: That's interesting. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. I think also this time the argument that's going on is internal among Republicans. Like it seems clear that the Republicans – in the Senate, and I suppose also some of them in the House, have just lost their appetite for another shutdown fight. And so the struggle is with the Republicans reining in Trump and reining in some of their own um, more extreme members, as opposed to really having a fight with the Democrats. I also think it's important to talk about this whole issue of how many um, beds we have in the country for detaining immigrants caught inside the interior or as they're applying for asylum. And You know, the Republicans, it's going too far to say they won that fight, but the the Democrats didn't really win either. I mean, we're still going to have between, as I understand it, like 40 and 45,000 people in detention. And some of these people are people who we just were not really scooping up in the past. I mean, this is this new world, or not new world, but this renewed practice of workplace raids and... Detaining people who are caught for committing very minor misdemeanor crimes and who just, like, have bad luck and come to the attention of ICE. All of that's going to continue. And I feel like we sort of lost sight of that in all the obsession with the wall. Um, but I read a really good piece in The Times by Caitlin Dickerson, who's one of the reporters who've been doing just such strong work on immigration. You know, it's really worth pausing to think about that.
2: Can I make the alternative case here quickly for not what you said, Emily, but for the politics of this? Uh, and it goes like this. The president got into this big, long two month long fight, which solidifies his base. They have no doubt about his 100 percent maximalist point of view on the thing they care about. Uh, Hannity can complain, but Donald Trump's Fifth Avenue claim about shooting someone and not getting in trouble is probably the more operative one in terms of his base. So he does that. He shows he shows um, uh, His base, what he cares about, they love him evermore. He keeps things focused on identity, which matters to his base. And if the Gallup poll, which was taken in, I think, 10 days after the first shutdown was ended and with the State of the Union, is right, and his overall approval number is now up to 44, which is his second highest rating since being president, he, because he is both the author of the chaos and is now also getting some amount of credit for the end of the chaos – did two things, helped himself with his base and has improved his numbers with independents who are responsible for that approval rating uptick. In which case, from a purely political standpoint, looking at things in this little nanosecond in which I'm talking, uh, it worked out, you could argue, quite well for the president.
0: But, John, my read of these a- approval rating polls is basically there's a 35 percent of the country that is just with Trump under any circumstances, sure. no matter what and then there's a there's a fluctuating number which is somewhere between you know 8 and 15% that will migrate back to him if he is not acting crazy or not Correct. doing things that seem manifestly destructive and there's nothing beyond that there's but. not really there's not really a another 20 points to gain if he's because he he just won't ever do anything to get the other 20 points. It's a totally a function of are you acting crazy or not acting crazy.
2: Right. I guess my point is this. Sure, agreed. But the relief that comes from not acting in an impulsive way, what I'm suggesting, and I don't this is a supposition. I have no idea if this is the way things actually work or are working, but that the relief from the end of the chaos that he was the author of has a salutary benefit that accrues to him because he's the president that puts him at the upper range of his range and that you wouldn't, let's say he muddled through and did some deal with Congress and everything worked the way it's supposed to in an ordered system, that he might not be at 44, that there is a sense of relief to be delivered from the chaos that he is the author of that has Mm -hmm. that that puts him towards the top of his range. I don't know if that's the way it works, but it's just the alternative theory that uh, that I think uh, is worth keeping in mind.
0: Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today on Slate Plus, we're going to talk about whether the attacks on Amy Klobuchar for being a horrible boss are, are they sexist? Are they true? What to make of them? Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member of Slate Plus today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Ilhan Omar, a freshman Democrat from Minnesota, one of the two first Muslim women in Congress, apologized this week for tweeting, it's all about the Benjamins, to describe why members of Congress are are pro-Israel or why they're influenced by AIPAC, the uh, group that helps support Israel's interests in the United States. Omar had also been criticized over the years because she had said back in 2012 that Israel hypnotized the world during the 2012 Gaza campaign. She apologized fulsomely for this recent tweet, but yet, yet, somehow that has not quieted the controversy. There's delight on the right about it. President Trump asked for a resignation, House minority leader Kevin McCarthy asked for her censure, and there's even division within Democrats about it. So, Emily, this fight is just really interesting and complicated and and tense. How bad was that tweet? Did it in fact traffic in anti-Semitic ter- stereotypes and was it wrong about what motivates support for Israel among members of Congress?
3: So that tweet made me wince. Partly as a matter of tone, partly because I'm just really sensitive right now to anti-Semitic tropes, mostly because they've been so much more prevalent and popularized on the right in the United States and and also on the left in Europe. So we're having this moment where it feels to me like anti-Semitic like, uh, memes and stereotypes are like creeping into the mainstream and that makes me want to keep them out. At the same time, it is true that APAC's influence is partly based on its ability to raise money for candidates, not entirely by any means. I mean, I think Peter Beinart did a great job of writing about this, and so did Michelle Goldberg this week, of, like, pointing out that there is a natural affinity among a lot of conservative Christians for Israel, partly because, like, they have a religious notion that if Jews are in control of Israel, that, like, the Jews will go to hell when the um, rapture comes, but it will make it easier for the Christians to, like, take over the Holy Land again. I don't totally get that. No,
0: I don't think that was a good explanation of no, what's going to happen. No, that a bad but, explanation. But <laughs> let's continue. <laughs> just continue. I mean, an all explanation. Right. I mean, it's, it's for a thing that will never happen. So who knows?
3: Okay. Well, maybe I'm wrong uh, about all that. Your eschatology may be incorrect. Be yes, yeah. but, okay. Let's go, let's go to the safer ground. I think that a lot of conservative Christians identify with Israel as this, like, small, militarized, somewhat country in the Middle East, a bad neighborhood they don't like. So there are other reasons than money for Israeli support in the United States. And of course, like historically, that support has been bipartisan. But it's also true that Israelis, that the Israeli government, and I blame a lot of this on Bibi Netanyahu, has made a much more kind of partisan bid for American political support than we've seen in the past. And Israel's human rights abuses, which are real, are alienating a lot of American Jews, especially younger American Jews. So there's just like a much more complicated tapestry of politics around Israel in this country. And I think the, uh, the sort of Big like wave of opprobrium against Elon Omar is uh, like you were saying, David. It's a lot of it is the right taking delight in using this as an issue to divide the left and to divide Democrats. That just seems way out of proportion. I guess the last thing that strikes me is like Elon Omar is perfectly legitimate for her to oppose Israeli policies against Palestinians and to stand with Palestinians and not to toe the Democratic Party line on Israel. I just think it's important for her to, like, recognize the problem of wrapping all this in terms of some, like, moneyed conspiracy on the part of Jews. And I think she got that. Like, she gave a really full-throated apology that I, like, take as sincere and in good faith and um, feel ready to move on from her part of this. And also I think it's really important that like some of these Republicans who are denouncing her of themselves trafficked in the stereotypes of Jews buying influence.
2: I guess the question is you get into an issue whether a 40-year-old woman uh – really didn't know uh, that this was a a stereotype about Jewish people. And we are in such a heightened period of recognizing dog whistles uh, when they come from anyone, and certainly on the Democratic side, recognizing all the dog whistles um, that they hear from President Trump or Republicans, to then be uh, totally unaware that this is a dog whistle, that seems... um, surprising at age 40. And there you know, Emily mentioned lots and lots of the complexities and parts of this, but let's just, focusing on this one thing, I think that's what makes some people think that uh, she was trafficking in something she either knew what she was bumping up against or should have known, and that the acceptance of her apology is a little too quick and lets her just kind of buy absolution uh, for something she should already uh, know about.
0: I I just think that's really... Man, I, I don't, I don't think that's fair. I think there's a there's an idea on the left that if you look, you look for the hidden force that guides everything. It's money. That's basically money is, and the, the secret money, whether it's you know Saudi money flowing to President Trump or Saudi money flowing to the Bush family or sure. whatever it is, that that's that's really the guidepost of what, what happens. And I think so. When when Omar looks at what you know, why is it that that Israel has such support? In the U.S., it's it is not unreasonable to to say, oh, it's a, it's the a money, it's this, the the money that that uh, APAC is able to help raise, or the money that that pro-Israel people are donating to candidates, I, that doesn't seem to me like intrinsically in uh, something where where she is trafficking anti-Semitic stereotype. And insofar as she is, she seems to have recognized and apologized. And and there is frankly a deep contradiction in how Jews and and Jews who support Israel want to talk about money. And want to talk about the influence of Jews. On the one hand, we want to say, oh, we're not special or powerful or influential or have disproportionate influence because that's a noxious stereotype about us. On the other hand, it is true that one reason why Jews have risen so much in politics and in so many professions which have real power in this country is because educated, successful, and m- have money and use that and use all those tools to generate support for causes they believe in, some of which are you know, on the right, some of which are on the left, some of which have to do with Israel, and some of which don't. And so th- there's this way in which we want to have it both ways. The Jews want to have it both ways. We never want to be accused of having money or using money to influence anything or having disproportionate power. On the other hand, we really actually have had disproportionate power in certain areas and have had you know, influence because of you know success in American society, and living with that contradiction is very difficult, and it puts people in a in a weird state. I want to. And Wait, sorry, so before did, I go, did
3: you feel like Ilan Omar's tweets were totally fine?
0: I didn't think they were totally fine. I think I do think they were trafficking in a stereotype, but I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt and think that uh-huh. you know it was it's more it's more sort of progressive. Oh, the money, you know, the secret money forces are doing everything than it was. The, those, you know, hook greedy Jews are doing everything. And I think, you know, she seems to have recognized that she screwed up and apologized for it. And I'm willing to move on. And, and what really pisses me off, and Emily, you were just touching on this, is the rank hypocrisy of those on the right who are reaching for their smelling salts <laughs> at this tweet. I mean who are – Practically you know, – they're practically in the ER because they're so upset about this tweet and yet they tolerate the most vile anti-Muslim stereotyping from people like Steve King and others on the right and others who you know, remain in power in, in the Republican Party and who, who tolerate the anti-Semitic stereotyping of the alt-right and the white nationalists who have thrown their support overwhelmingly to conservative candidates and to Donald Trump.
2: If I could just interject there, I mean, the president of the United States, the leader of the Republican Party, suggested banning all Muslims from the country.
0: Correct. Yes. And the president of the United States has himself trafficked in anti-Semitic stereotypes, which I'm sure he would call philo-Semitic, but all about how Jews are good with money and things like that. And and you know, does, is he being is he calling for his own resignation? No.
3: I also feel like it's important to bring up the context of the um, the boycott.
0: Boycott, divestment, sanctions. Yeah,
3: thank you. We should bring up in the context of this bill in Congress that goes against the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. That bill singles out one particular strain of political activism to, like, throttle it. And it seems like it's probably – unconstitutional in light of people's free speech rights. It just seems like a problem, that bill. And it demonstrates that right now in the United States, the people with political power are the people who are trying to stifle um, protest against Israel. And that just seems like worth bringing into the conversation. Um, I guess I'm not sure, David, I completely agree with your characterization of how Jews think about our own influence and money. I understand what you were saying. I guess my own take on it is that because because we do have these historically, like, incredibly dangerous stereotypes about Jews and money and control, it is fair to expect people to tread very carefully when they talk about this issue, which doesn't mean you shouldn't have an honest conversation about how AIPAC, which doesn't directly raise money for candidates but does exert a lot of influence in Washington. Like, yes, we should talk about it, but I just feel like we should – it's fair to expect people to be sensitive in those discussions. I mean,
0: Emily, you and I both went on an APAC-funded trip to Israel, and and were were, you know, fed and and delivered of an APAC perspective on what was going on in Israel and Iran. This is, I mean, many years—twelve years ago now. But it there's a, a conscious effort. There's a real successful lobbying effort and funding effort to. Which is
3: influence journalists to we want a influence trip for journalists. influence
0: journalists to influence politicians to influence the public debate, and it's been very successful because there's you know it's being done by very effective people. They have backing of rich people like Sheldon Adelson who will fund lots of di- different ventures. Um, so it is it it's crazy not to not to acknowledge that the the effort to portray present Israel's side of things and increase and what's troublesome is that what Israel's side of things has come to mean Netanyahu's side of things. Right. That's a big problem. But the effort to present Israel's side of things has, has been an extraordinarily uh, extensive, well funded and and very successful effort. And, right. like, let's, let's I would not go
3: that. on I mean I wouldn't be allowed to go on that trip under New York Times rules, but I also would not choose to go on that trip now. I and and part of that is the changing political landscape and the influence of Netanyahu and the right in Israel, which is Far greater now than it was 12 years ago. But that's why, to me, one of the important points here is that it's important to have people like Omar have a real voice in American politics because they are trying to present a different point of view, which in the United States is still – under-influencing, right? Like, we still don't hear enough about that. And if the United States wanted to do more to prevent human rights abuses in Israel and make the Israelis back off from taking Palestinian property and increasing their settlements in the West Bank, etc., the United States could do that.
0: John, do you think that Israel is a significant problem for Democrats? Republicans are... Basically unified, very supportive of the Netanyahu government, very supportive of, of the right wing in Israel and whatever the right wing in Israel wants to do, um, not terribly concerned about what's going on in the settlements. But Democrats have this division. There are some on the progressive left who, for ideological reasons, are very concerned with what Israel's is doing. There but there are a lot of Jewish members of Congress, there are a lot of members of Congress with close ties to Israel who you know, more or less come down in the – if not exactly with Netanyahu, but certainly like further to the right than, than Omar would. And is that, is that a fracture that can really be damaging to the Democratic Party or is it just like, you know, it's one of the contradictions the party lives with?
2: Well, I think it, it depends where it spills out into. I mean if this looks like Democratic leaders not letting uh, a Muslim woman in, of color speak her mind, then it gets, it gets well beyond Israel. And it, uh, it goes to the heart of identity politics inside the, the Democratic Party to the extent that the Republicans, uh, if you want to take the most cynical view of why they want to keep this conversation going, is that they would like a to create mischief inside the Democratic Party and uh, they would like Omar to be uh, the face of the party. And so if all of that – if all of these topics which are strongly felt by um, people on both sides of the democratic debate on this – become kind of move into the central conversation the white hot lights of you know cable madness all day long conversation that's never a place for sensitive topics with complexity to be discussed Uh, and so to the extent that you're having more of those sensitive conversations in the worst possible venue that's not good for your party and that goes beyond specific feelings about israel that gets into Core ideas of what the party's about—about about identity, about race—and um, we've seen from the last election um, that that those can be very powerful motivators um, in a positive and negative way for voters.
0: What a showdown between Amazon's Jeff Bezos and the National Enquirer and its greasy boss David Pecker last week in an extraordinary, vivid, delightful post on Medium. Bezos accused AMI, the parent company of the National Enquirer, of trying to extort him, to sextort him, by threatening to publish sexually compromising pictures he had exchanged with his girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez. The Enquirer uh, – this dates back to the Enquirer – had gotten a hold of texts between Bezos and Sanchez and was preparing to publish them. Bezos essentially preempted their the publication, although the publication went forward, by announcing – before publication happened, his own divorce from Mackenzie Bezos, his wife. And uh, the Inquirer seemed to be ready to follow up by publishing these photos, but sent Bezos a letter saying, we won't publish these compromising photos, which we will now describe to you in great detail, if you, Bezos, agree to say that our attack on you is not politically motivated. If you if you will come out and, and say the Inquirer did not act at a political malice towards you or as part of some larger political program, then we will not publish. And Bezos was like, screw you. I'm going to publish this correspondence and show the world you were trying to extort me. The pictures may have been leaked to the inquiry by Sanchez's pro-Trump brother. Uh, and it may be part of some general inquiry campaign to help Trump or damage Trump's enemies of which...
3: Or help the Saudis. Uh,
0: yes, or help the Saudis, actually. There was this episode last year where the National Enquirer published a magazine on behalf of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that was basically just uh, a pure propaganda sheet for the Saudi government that was distributed all over the country on newsstands. And was basically lobbying by the Saudi government, but dressed up as journalism. So, Emily, is what the Enquirer did, does it uh, with sending this letter to Bezos, does it appear to be legal to you?
3: I'm not sure. I mean, I think not like I am I'm, I imagine there's going to be some deniability in here and the law of blackmail is complicated. But, you know, look, on the one hand, like you're allowed to make an offer to be silent about something in exchange for something else. Like that is a thing that companies offer um, when they're trying to settle disagreements with employees, with consumers, et cetera. But you're not supposed to ask for something that has nothing to do with what you're offering to keep silent, if that makes any sense. Like, nexus. There's supposed nexus. to be a nexus. Yes, that is a legal word here. And so then what we're talking about in a case like this is what uh, Eugene Volokh, who's an excellent First Amendment scholar, calls an absence of a nexus. So the And that makes it illegal. So the problem from the National Enquirer's point of view is that they were asking Bezos to make this statement about how they hadn't been politically influenced. And that had nothing to do with these sext pictures that they were promising not to publish. And therefore, it is illegal. It is punishable as blackmail. If that theory is right and it's totally plausible, then AMI, the parent company for the Inquirer, has a, a, a general problem of, like, whether it could be prosecuted for blackmail, but also a specific problem, which is that it's – Agreement with Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, is that it got off the hook for the whole catch and release <laughs> scandal involving President Trump and, um, the story of his affair with Karen McDougal it got off the hook for silencing that story by agreeing not to commit other crimes. And so, if this is another crime, then um, AMI looks like it's in violation of that agreement with the prosecutors.
0: And the punishment would be what?
3: I don't know. I mean, the punishment is that the prosecutors can now prosecute AMI for that crime or like back out of the assurances AMI got for whatever cooperation it gave. It's not clear that Mueller wants to do that, but. It has been reported that federal investigators are looking into whether AMI is in violation of the agreement and, and whether this is blackmail.
0: So, John, if the rest of us are threatened with sextortion with by the National Enquirer or by, like, the local community listserv, should we respond the way Bezos did? Is this a, is this a, a response that all of us should now engage in? It seems like an utterly brilliant move on Bezos's part. It seems like, I mean, it, he's accepted some sense of embarrassment that people now know these photos exist. Although, like, who cares? And it just is just standing up to a bully in a in a wonderful way. And is that what what everyone should do, or is it something only a billionaire can do?
2: Well, standing up to a bully is is really uh, satisfying. It depends, I guess, on your pain threshold. I mean, you could imagine doing it if you didn't have a billion, well, like two hundred billion dollars, um, uh, because that um, that does a lot to. Um, Help you get over any embarrassment. And by the way, he's already. I mean, his marriage is already over. The the texts are already out. Uh, So even if you have a slightly higher pain threshold, uh, or I should say, I guess maybe I mean lower pain threshold. Anyway, even if you uh, even if you can't tolerate a lot of pain, the incremental pain of the pictures themselves. Is not as big as if it had been the whole disclosure. You know, if it had been the text and the pictures and the fact that the the affair was going already going on. So since two thirds of those things were already out, it lessens the amount of pain here. Anybody should read the blog post on Medium, by the way, for just lots of things, including the jargon from the business
0: world, um,
3: complexifier,
0: the introduction of the word complexifier. What is the correct word in that case? It should just be complication it is a complication
3: i actually thought complexifier was kind of great it has like a more active sense than complication oh, to me oh my
0: god you are you were you disappointing me <laughs>
3: david is looking away despondent
2: it also felt like a thing that might look like a problem but that i've already got handled and taken care of um mm-hmm. uh anyway it also has the one most the tightest one paragraph of what exactly he has achieved in his life.
0: Wait, John, do you have that in front of you? Do you have that in front of you? I, I can't remember that paragraph. It would be great. Read it if you have it there.
2: So here is that paragraph um, from uh, Jeff Bezos's post on Medium. AMI's claim of newsworthiness, meaning the newsworthiness of the of the text, is that the photos are necessary to show Amazon shareholders that my business judgment is terrible. I founded Amazon in my garage 24 years ago. And drove all the packages to the post office myself. Today, Amazon employs more than 600,000 people. Just finished its most profitable year ever, even while investing heavily in new initiatives and is usually somewhere between the number one and number five most valuable company in the world. I will let those results speak for themselves. He could have included, and I am the richest man in the world. So... <laughs> Um, it was, you know, there was a general tone of swagger to this in response to the bully, which is incredibly pleasing. He also mentioned that he hired investigators and lawyers and gave them an open checkbook. And what's at the heart here, though, of this is that he investigated what they were after and and found some things that they clearly didn't want him to disclose. I don't know where this goes from here or what this tells us about our current moment, but it was an amazing uh, event in the, in the history of our modern day.
3: So one it, thing... I was thinking about was, David, a theory you have propounded in the past, which is that we would all be better off if we just decided that, like, who cares what embarrassing sex-related material there is about us online and just, like, neutralize this as a weapon in the opinion wars? I mean, this was definitely a step down that road, and I assumed you were applauding it for that reason.
0: For sure. I don't go all the way to where Dan Savage went. Dan <laughs> Savage was like, let's see him. Jeff, publish these pictures yourself. Um,
3: and Dan but, was saying that we should spell it out because he was yeah. like, that will help everybody else. Like, you're yeah. the powerful billionaire. That will make it less yeah. embarrassing. It will, like, take away the sting for others who are facing real problems with being sextorted and don't have anything like Jeff Bezos's power and cloud yeah. in the world. There's,
0: right? a, there's an incredible number of people. I, I heard the stat on another podcast. Something like 12 percent of Americans have had uh, their explicit pictures, explicit, explicit images of them – distributed without their consent in some fashion. That's an incredible number. It's probably not that high. I know. I feel like
3: whatever the number is, it's awful. And we should say it's usually women who are victims of this. And it's the context often of some abusive relationship or end of relationship. And it's awful.
2: Can I ask a question then, which is if it's 12 percent, we all stipulate that that might be a figure that's just (laughs) totally made up. But if it's 12 percent that are extorted, um, what then is the number of people? Not extorted. Not extorted. Not extorted. Oh okay, twelve percent not twelve percent
0: who Twelve percent them... who who that they've been distributed in some fashion without their consent, not necessarily. Okay, that so I guess my question being extorted. is distorted. I mean, it might be like I forwarded some you know picture of uh, my girlfriend in a in a state of undress to my buddy.
2: Right. Okay. So, That's but then extortion. what what is the total number of people who are doing this then privately? Right. Who aren't a mishap isn't happening.
3: Oh, many, many. The so you think fifty percent sexting? it's like eighty eight percent I mean, I don't know if I believe that either, but it many many people I are have doing to say
0: this. whenever I talk to single i'm you know these are men in their forties, but who are divorced about their sex lives, it's extraordinary to me, like the level of sexting sexual image passing that's going on i mean it's really amazing, so so it is I, more the norm it, than who, not. It's awesome. Who cares? That's great. No, no, no. But it's this great. is my. This is to the dance. Savage to people. It's
3: great until someone forwards it without your consent. Let's just say. But can
2: can I just so is it possible to say that this is more the norm than not among single people?
0: I think so. It yeah. sounds like it. Probably. It sounds like it is. I'm just yeah.
2: just learning about the um,
0: world. So I want to I want to wrap this actually by talking about um by by looking at this from a different direction, which is. The National Enquirer is like, like Slate, like, like The Docker. New York Times, like CBS. It is a is a a publication. It is a part of the free press that is one of the pride and joys and great contributions to civilization the United States has made. Is it an institution that we as journalists should feel very protective of, and that we should be careful before we are celebrate too much? Jeff Bezos going after it, or on the alternative, is it the fact that it has its catch and kill policies? its use as a weapon for Trump, its uh, willingness to to be a sort of laundry for the Saudi government, has that put it outside the bounds of the normal press? And therefore, we shouldn't be too concerned if it gets, you know, driven into bankruptcy as Gawker did or if it gets, it gets um, punished for what it's done.
3: I, I'm going to go for outside the bounds. I may be deluded on this point, but I actually don't think the Enquirer is like um, – CBS or Gawker, in that this, what I view as blackmail of Bezos is not something, this catch and release policy is not something those news organizations do. And so I would like to think that we are different enough from them that we can dance on their grave. Um, Right. You know, you can make another argument. They are a press entity, but I feel like it's fair to distinguish among these practices, both legally and, like, you know, in terms of values and ethics.
2: Well, and let's be specific about what the catch and kill does. Is It uses, let's imagine you embrace for a moment, David, your description of it as a member of the the more benevolent press. It is using that reputation and all those protections to hide the misdeeds or alleged misdeeds of a single person. So that's not the way that's supposed to work, in addition to the fact that it's just gross that you're hiding um, you know, alleged affairs that took place uh, in general, and then turning around and using... The moral cudgel in the memo that Bezos um, reprints. Um, there's all of this moral sanctimony in the descriptions of his um, of his pictures and whether his wedding ring is is uh, can be seen or not um, that they're using to try to extort from him. So if you read the memo, uh, that's also something no reputable news organization would get within a million miles of in dealing with the way they do. Uh, their business, so that would those two things would place them very far outside the normal bounds.
3: And also, if we're going to go back to the Peter Thiel example of how he, you know, destroyed Gawker financially by suing it, Bezos hasn't actually tried to do any of that. So, you know, we can note the too great influence of billionaires repeatedly in like the story of American media and politics right now, without saying that it's equivalent.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter when. You're tired of sharing sex and actually just want to have a drink and an actual conversation with somebody. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about with them?
2: Well, on uh, on Thursday, there were a bunch of new disclosures uh, that are a part of Andrew McCabe's new book. He was the deputy FBI director who was fired Um Uh, right before he was to get his pension uh, as a result of something having not to do with the investigations into Hillary Clinton's emails and Donald Trump's relationship with the Russians but he also happened to be the person overseeing those two things Um, and he said to he writes about his book basically these eight days in May after um, not to be confused with the seven days in May um, eight days in May uh, after um, Jim Comey was fired by the president and the and what comes across in both his 60 minutes interview and in the piece that the excerpt that's in the atlantic was this absolutely frantic kind of pell-mell what can we find in the nearest uh, desk drawer to help us deal with what they thought was basically based on their frantic behavior, was president as a Russian agent. And there are two things that have been in the paper. The New York Times has reported them, but they've never been sourced directly, as McCabe is now owning up to them. One is that Rod Rosenstein, who was overseeing the Mueller investigation, the deputy attorney general, Mentioned twice, wearing a wire, in, so that his conversations with the president could be recorded. Um, when they were in this period, where they thought, you know, that, that the that James Comey was fired because the president was trying to cover up for his relationship with Russia. And the second thing is that that at the FBI, anyway, they had this conversation about whether the Twenty Fifth Amendment was a possible remedy, and if you know, and and according to what McCabe told. Scott Pelley on 60 minutes they even sort of went down the cabinet officials who would have been required during one in one version of the way the 25th amendment works um and they kind of went down and saw thought through who who would and wouldn't possibly vote to invoke the 25th amendment which would remove the president from power I get, what strikes me obviously McCabe has an axe to grind with the with um with the president who also attacked his wife, basically made up some stuff about his wife who's running for office in Virginia. But what is this just kind of frantic effort? And Rod Rosenstein has not denied that he made the um, the claims about wearing a wire. He put out a statement on Thursday saying he never authorized a wire, which is not what's at issue here. What's at issue is whether he suggested doing it. And so by denying that he ever authorized it, he's essentially affirming what McCabe is saying. Anyway, it's, a, it's, an, it's kind of an extraordinary development in – again, we knew some of this. That had been reported before, but now to actually have it, you know, the person who was involved actually saying it out loud
0: is a real development. Emily. Indeed. Emily, what is your chatter?
3: I was following with fascination over the last couple of weeks a story out of Houston where um, the district attorney, Kim Ogg, asked the county commission for money to pay for 100 new prosecutors in her county. And she said she was doing this because Hurricane Harvey had like has continually snarled up the courts and and her prosecutors have like tons of cases to process. But Og made this request without asking for any equivalent rise in funding for defense lawyers. And a super interesting thing happened, which was that some civil rights groups and other um, organizers who really had campaigned for her because Og ran as part of a, this new wave of progressive prosecutors, those groups like came out against her really loudly and opposed this request. And it got voted down by the county commission. So it's just a really interesting test of accountability for someone um who, who ran promising reforms as a DA. And I also just want to say it is such a pleasure to follow stories out of Texas because there are excellent journalists in Texas, like doing all the legwork, um, in particular, Carrie Blakinger for the Houston Chronicle, and then um, Scott Henson, who blogs at, uh, and tweets at Grits for Breakfast, um, which is like an indispensable handle if you're interested in criminal justice in Texas. So anyway, that story.
0: My chatter, double chatter. In fact, quadruple chatter. So oh Abe God. Lincoln's birthday, I learned three three amazing Abe Lincoln facts. Number one, Abe Lincoln and Charles Darwin were born on the same day, February 12th, 1809. That's amazing. Two of the titans of world history born on the same day, thousands of miles apart. Number two, uh, Abe Lincoln, as it was a criminal defense lawyer for a while, and he wrote a true crime account of a Bizarre murder case that he was involved in, where he was defending someone accused of murder who was later cleared because the victim, the supposed victim, showed up alive. And Abe Lincoln has this remarkable true crimey account of it that Smithsonian published this week. Third, Abe Lincoln coined the word words.
3: That's awesome. Or
0: excuse me, sorry, bass ackwards, bass ackwards, not back-ass words, but bass ackwards, bass ackwards. So That's he's, less awesome. It's less uh, less awesome. I misread it. But <laughs> bass backwards. You in fact, where wrote, you wrote, had bass
2: backwards. Ass backwards. I had.
0: I was back ass. I was. I was ass backwards. <laughs> so, but he um, he wrote this letter. Uh, t- he said he was writing bass backwards on a jazz sack through a patent cotch. and but the OED credits him as the the coiner of that phrase, which is great. But then but, uh, my other quick chatter is I go ahead, John.
2: Well, can I just say the other thing about the 12th of February that uh, is not mentioned in Lincoln biographies as much as it should be, but that the 12th of February is the first time the word podcast was used in print according to the OED, which is um, – so that means it would have been the 15th anniversary of the coinage of that term. So uh, that's also a very important thing that happened on the 12th of February.
0: Wow. (laughs) And yet we've been podcasting for 37 years. How does that work? I don't understand. (laughs)
3: Don't say that. You're making us even older, which is not helpful.
0: Uh, then quickly, another – other. Uh, I just want to mention I've started this book, uh, which is wonderful. It's called Maid, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. And if you can imagine um, that Tara Westover book, Educated, crossed with Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed, you'd get something like Maid. Stephanie Land uh, It just writes about her life as a single mother trying to survive as a maid, and it's, it's – Great, I'm about halfway through. It's a fantastic book. She's a really good writer. Very grueling and very kind of vivid account of what it's like to be constantly uh, on the edge and of poverty. Um, so check it out, John. You guys should interview her on your show. She'd okay. be a great interviewer for your show. We had listener chatter this week. Also, you guys have been tweeting them to us at at slate gabfest and uh, sharing them on Facebook at facebook.com/slash gabfest. And this week. Uh, there's – again, there were like six or seven I would have been happy to chatter about. This one I would like to um, give Rick Zucker, uh, at RN Zucker, who seems to be retweeting Shane Kavanaugh is – so I'm not sure if this comes from Rick or from Shane. Forgive me. I didn't do enough research there. They point us to a story in Oregon Live about uh, how Saudis who are arrested for serious crimes in the US, arrested and charged with serious crimes – are suddenly disappearing from the US. And so there's cases of people arrested for rape, arrested for manslaughter, whose passports are taken, who post hundreds of thousands or five up to $500,000 in bail, who then vanish and seem to be secreted out of the country by private plane by the Saudi government and end up back in Saudi Arabia. So it's it's a really weird, disturbing example of how the Saudi government is, is distorting American justice and making it impossible for, for people to um, be held accountable for crimes they may have committed. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who's here with me in Washington today. It's so nice to see in Person. Yay. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Special thanks to our engineers. Usually Danielle Hewitt is here with me. Ryan McAvoy at Yale. Alan Pang of CBS. Thank you all for your great work. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. You should tweet chatter at us there, too. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson David Plotz, please join us at our shows in Washington on March 27th and in Charlottesville, April 12th. Go to Slate.com live to get tickets. We will talk to you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?